0: Did you know that you can listen to every single episode of Gangry the Podcast? We've done more than 60 of them now. On our website? Just go to gangrythepodcast.com and you can listen to interviews with amazing writers and reporters like Pamela Koloff, David Gran, Janet Reitman, Tom Juneau, Eli Saslow, and so many more. Just go to gangrythepodcast.com That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y thepodcast.com Welcome to Gangry the Podcast, I'm Matt Tullis. For this episode, I spoke with Brendan O'Meara. O'Meara is the host of the Creative Nonfiction Podcast. On that show, he talks to writers, filmmakers, producers, and podcasters who he admires. They talk about the art and craft of telling true stories.
1: I want it to be celebration of the work and the process and the people at the helm of that work. And to have somebody like... Susan or Eli, Tracy Kidder, Glenn Stout, for, for them to want to carve out the time, it's incredibly validating, and I'm supremely grateful to be able to unpack their brains a little bit about how they go about the work.
0: I was a guest on the Creative Nonfiction Podcast back in September of 2017 when Omira talked with me about my memoir, Running with Ghosts. Omira is also a reporter and a writer. In 2016, he published the story, The Day That Never Comes in the online magazine Proximity. That story, which we talk about in this episode, ultimately won Proximity's Narrative Journalism Prize for the year it was published.
1: Uh, this one um, is about uh, Morgan Dana Harrington, who was a, a young woman, 19 years old, who was abducted, raped, and murdered uh, from, she was you know, abducted from a Metallica concert in 2009 in Charlottesville, Virginia.
0: Omira is also the author of Six Weeks in Saratoga, how three year old filly Rachel Alexandra beat the boys and became Horse of the Year. As usual, we've linked to Omira's work, including his podcast, on our website. You can find that at www.gangrythepodcast.com. Brendan, welcome to Gangry the Podcast.
1: Hey, Matt, it's, uh, A pleasure and an honor to be here, and I'm looking forward to our conversation. This should be a lot of fun.
0: It should be a lot of fun. We're kind of reversing roles here. Um, About a year ago, uh, a little more than a year ago, when my book came out, you had me on your show, uh, The Creative Nonfiction Podcast, uh, and now uh, I wanted to get you on on this show. So um, let's start off by talking about your podcast. Uh, it's, It's called The Creative Nonfiction Podcast, right? Correct. Yep. Uh, you've been on a roll lately. When I've been looking at some of the guests and, and listening to some of the shows, uh, most recently you've had my favorite human being in the publishing world, Glenn Stout, on. Um, but you've also had Susan Orlean and Eli Saslow uh, recently. Um, what's that? What's that been like for you uh, to to host these like amazing like luminaries in the nonfiction world?
1: It's in, it's
0: incredible,
1: it, and I feel so uh, sort of. I'm just like swelled with like gratitude that these titans of the industry that we write in, in narrative journalism or just in true storytelling in general, uh, have, um, you know want to carve out an hour, sometimes longer to come on the show and talk shop. And as I always like to, to pitch them, if they're so willing to come on, I I, I like to have it, have it set up in a sense where it's just like two, two artists, two writers, or uh, just two creators just getting coffee or having a beer and and talking shop. And it, I, one of the the prerequisites of my show is that I just want to have anybody on that I just greatly admire. Like that's that's it because I don't want to be in any sort of takedown game or be can combative in any way. I want it to be celebration of the work and the process and the people at the helm of that work. And to have somebody like Susan or Eli, Tracy Kidd or Glenn Stout, for, for them to want to carve out the time, it's incredibly validating and I'm supremely grateful to be able to unpack their brains a little bit about how they go about the work. And you you soon find out that these luminaries, as you say, they have the same kind of baseline struggles that you know a middling person who might be might have some talent, but is kind of wallowing in obscurity, they kind of have the same insecurities and the same worries about their work. Excuse me, about their work. And it's really comforting to know that these titans of our industry do struggle with the same things that that I do and that maybe someone else who has a less visible profile. So it's great to be able to pull those people on to validate everyone else's artist journey, if
0: you will, it, 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 that is one of the most um, I think fascinating things is the idea that they struggle just like everyone else. And I try to point that out to my students. Um, you know, when I when I when when we're talking about how to do work, and and I you know they they come to me with concerns. I was like, hey, don't worry. Um, the best in the world um, have the same struggles. Uh, you know, uh, when when they're doing this type of work because doing narrative journalism is incredibly hard. Um yeah.
1: It's incredibly hard and very few people who are who are even supremely visible in the field can actually make a living doing solely that. Uh, so sometimes it's you know, a lot of people are they're finding a crack in their schedule whatever day job they might have they might be teaching or they might be in sales and marketing but they do have they do have that itch to do some narrative journalism literary journalism whatever it is and they find the crack in their schedule uh they might even build vacations around it uh you know if they're going to X, Y, X place maybe they're like oh may i can parlay uh, a little reporting trip into this and do a little research and it's it's great to to um to get a, get a sense even with these these people like you know you're talking to uh students who might look up to your your Saslows or your David Grants and your Susan Orleans or John McPhee, whoever whoever that is and you look up there and you see their their name and in, in, in the billboard that you have put their name on and you don't see, you see the final product but you don't see the road and it took them oftentimes you know decades and millions of words to reach that point and it's it, it's important to know that it does take an incredible amount of time and very few people are plucked and anointed, which is why I hate those, like, the 30 best writers under 30 right. lists that come out. It just, I feel like it helps 30 people and crushes 30,000.
0: Right, right.
1: It, You know what I mean? And so being able to have longer conversations and to say that, you know, somebody like Eli, you know, he started a smaller paper in New Jersey as a sports writer and then, you know, worked his way up to be this person who can put out 12 beautiful features a year for the Washington Post while living in Portland, Oregon. Like, But a lot of people just see the Pulitzer Prize and and living in Portland, Oregon and writing 10 to 12 features a year for the Washington Post and being able to do whatever he wants. But the fact is, like, talk about, you know, 15 to 20 years of sustained work to get to that point. And right, a lot of right. times people don't see that.
0: Right. Did you read his most recent piece uh, about the uh, the the. The guy who is writing kind of fake stories uh, online—have uh, you seen that piece?
1: I've. I. It's in my queue to read. Yeah. It's. Um, it's yeah.
0: Again, it's a. Ama- you know, it's typical Eli Saslow. It's. It's pretty amazing. The reporting is amazing. Uh, in my mind. Uh, yeah, with and, everything and, he does.
1: Exactly, and with people like like him and, and countless other people that you and I have both spoken to, it really is uh, a confidence in being patient with the, you know, whether it's the research or even just in the interviewing, it's letting maybe the silence do the work and let people fill that silence in. And eventually, you know, if you spend enough time with people, they do, you know, the walls kind of break down and that semi-permeable membrane starts to get more porous. And you're able to, um, you know, if you're afforded the luxury of the time to do it, that's how Eli and, and countless others that, that we admire and have spoken to are able to write these beautiful stories because they just kind of let, you know, they ask a good question, but then they just kind of, they don't interrupt. They just sit there and they listen. And that's what ultimately leads to such great and vibrant stories. Right.
0: How long have you been doing your podcast?
1: So, I started it. Let's see. I believe my very first episode was in 2013, maybe April of late March or early April 2013. So, coming up, you know, over five years was the birth date of uh, the Creative Nonfiction Podcast, which I had called hashtag CNF at the time, which uh, I quickly learned that very few people even know what CNF stands for. (laughs) So, I had to make sure I had to make the title a bit more explicit. Um, But so. So I started it. I started it then, and it was really to appease the uh, loneliness I was feeling in uh, doing freelancing stuff, mainly from home, upstate New York. So not in a big metropolis by any stretch. You know, by Saratoga Springs, and and I was also I was doing a lot of those. Primarily, my my main freelance income was coming from you know Bleacher Report slideshows and stuff of that nature. And uh, that's just, you know, it's I would get a bit sort of bitter and resentful that I was like <laughs> doing these slideshows, and meanwhile, all these people I admire are doing these deeply, beautifully reported pieces, and I here I am in my house in my flannels and pajamas writing these winners and losers from the Daytona 500, and um, it just I would just get kind of I was lonely and a bit resentful, and I just kind of wanted to build a community around the work I admire and the art and craft of telling true stories. So that was kind of the, why I wanted to start it then. It was kind of before the, maybe the big podcast boom, a little before the, the big podcast boom that that we're sort of in. So yeah, I started it then, but it was kind of like a three year, I call it like a three year warm-up Cause I, I think I did 31 episodes in the first three years. So I, ba- I basically just did it when I, excuse me, um, when I kind of felt like doing it. And then I wondered why I wasn't getting an audience. So, uh, towards the end of 2016, the very beginning of 2017, which I kind of call it like it's true rebirth was when I was like, you know what, Brendan, lean into this, do it once a week and see if it grows. And that's what, and it has been growing at a nice little steady clip by just putting a drop, you know, a drop in the water and watching the bucket slowly fill up. And I, I have, I think on average, I think I've stuck to one a week since the first or second week of 2017, and it's been it's been nice. It's been gaining a little bit of traction. So I say it, it started five years ago, a little over five years ago, but it was really two years ago where I really leaned into right, it and right. I, and and have been really building and fostering this kind of community around true stories.
0: That's funny because uh, uh, my show we started uh, first episode was December 2012, so not to okay. not to uh, too far or too too much earlier than than when you got started, um, and I think
1: uh, long form started right around that
0: time. Long form too. started right around that time as well, um, and uh, yeah, the same thing. When I was doing it, especially uh, in twenty thirteen and the start of twenty fourteen, I was able to get one out every two weeks, and that when I was in that like zone uh, is obviously when it was the most popular, and I'm trying to trying to get back there uh, right now. But, uh, yeah, so it's, it's, it can be, it's
1: challenging not only to, especially if you're doing all the editing and the booking and then you have your, you know, your 40 to 50 hour day job around that. It's, it's really, it's a challenge to not only get the reading done, to do a thoughtful deep dive on people's work and, you know, craft an interview that you hope is inspiring, not only to your guests for taking the time, you want to challenge them in a way that, it merits the time they're spending, but also gives your listeners the tactical value and the inspiration they deserve for also spending that hour to ninety minutes with you. So there there are these little pressures too, that are just that kind of chip at your brain, yeah. uh, as you're trying to put it out once a week or every two weeks. right?
0: Well, now I find myself because uh, you've got your show is rolling along one a week is is awesome. Um, uh, Don Venata is doing his the sunday uh, the sunday, uh Sunday morning long read podcast. Long form is still cranking away. Um, uh, and I'm constantly like looking at who everybody has on because sometimes I like I don't want to d- d- double dip and have the same people. But other times I'm like, I want the person that Brendan just talked to. I want to talk to. And, you know, I'm thinking Bryn Jonathan Butler um, yeah. because we both like put out that episode of <laughs> pretty close to the same time. Um, yeah. uh, but at the same time I'm thinking, you know, I, I, I don't really think of, uh, everybody else's competition. I don't know how you feel about that, but it's, it, it really is all aimed at like generating this conversation about around the stuff that we love and, and, and why not have the same guy out a couple times? You know what I mean?
1: Exactly. And I used to, and I, I, I used to be far more competitive and, and, and harbored unnecessary jealousies. Uh, towards, towards my peers who I thought I like, you know, I would just say like, oh man, like I feel like I'm every bit as good. Like, why can't I get that traction, that toehold, or maybe that guest on on my show? Uh, you know, the guy. You know, there was one example. I won't say any names, but it was like one guy. Said, you know, he couldn't come on my show because he wasn't doing anything. But then he showed up on another one, and it was like, oh man, like you know, that just made <laughs> me feel like crap. And um, so I, I at times I have harbored. These sort of uh, petty competitions with with myself, and then I have to remind myself, like you know, when I feel those awful awful urges, that is a a sort of a blackness in my own blood that I have to just get out. I channel that energy into doing better work, and I realize that a rising tide truly floats all boats. So, like you like you're saying, it's just why not expose people to Bryn Jonathan Butler's work and the way he formulates and talks in like perfect prose and these deep thoughtful sentences and I'm just sitting back listening to somebody like him talk and it's just like how does someone do this and why not have more people because there's there might not be people who have as of yet subscribed to my show that listen to you and vice versa so why not, why not have, you know, give Bryn as big a platform to just so people can hear him Talk and hear them think. So I'm with I'm with you. I, I, I tend I, I I tend to feel that competitiveness. Not not like not like you, but but then I channel it like you and realize that we're all in this together. Let's celebrate great work and inspire people to keep doing the kind of work that inspires us. Yeah,
0: you've done 125 episodes now. Is that right? Or let's see, uh, 126. 126. Um. Yep. So 126 episodes. You know. Um. Uh, talking to the best reporters and writers uh in the country um, but you also write so how how you're also a reporter right uh, how has these conversations how have they helped you uh when it comes to doing your own writing
1: yeah that's a great great question um it's sometimes i waver if it if the podcast has helped or kind of hurt me as a as a writer and i will Elucidate on on both of those points, but in terms of help, I think, and I I, I love this one anecdote that Andre DeBuse the who's the you know, author of House of Sand and Fog and met great memoir, Townie When I, I spoke to him a while ago about this, was when he wrote that his breakthrough novel, he wrote that basically in 17 minute bursts in his truck on the side of the road, just as a little way to get a kind of get away from his not in a bad way, but to get away from his, his day job and his family before, you know, he had to go back and, you know, and be a dad. You know, three kids, a wife, and he was a carpenter. And he would be in his truck, you know, writing longhand legal pads for 17 minutes every day by this graveyard in his truck. And it's like, wow, if you can find, find that little crack, no matter what it is, find your writing time and make it holy, you can do some good work. You don't need a sustained burst of eight hours every day to do good work good narrative and that goes for nonfiction or fiction but you know we we dabble in the in the verifiably true so you know maybe you have 20 minutes to do a phone do some you know phone reporting it's like all right you know keep keep building your research build your notebook you know build your recorders and then you're starting to have some ore that you can mine to write a great story so I always cite that as like you know you don't you can you can fit it in if you prioritize it and you make it import if it's important to you you will find the time conversely talking to so many of these these brilliant people whose work humbles me you know, like to, I I I like to use the anecdote from uh, Harvey Penick's little red book on you know that little red book on golf that yeah, he wrote yeah. there there's a there's a scene in that very short thing where you know Penick at one point you a know, very competent competent player himself you know harbored dreams of playing on the tour but he was at the range and all of a sudden he hears like this pretty much he was, he equates to a shotgun burst and he was like what the hell is that and he goes over to the range and turns out Sna- sam sneed you know on the range just blasting and drives and he at, as soon as panic heard the contact that sneed was making with the ball it essentially said he essentially said i I can't make it on the tour like if that's who's on the tour I don't have what he has and <laughs> then they like and so he he pivoted to be one of the most uh revered golf instructors of all time so sometimes when I'm talking to a Bryn Jonathan Butler or uh especially someone like like him or Ted Conover Debuse, Susan Orlean talking to these people like to me in a way that's like my sand Sneed getting that close I'm like in a, in a way they've kind of they break me in a way that makes it hard for me to go to my own work because they are just, they're just so supremely gifted but also hardworking and I always feel like my work can't measure up, but which is foolish and hypocritical if I actually succumb to that urge. So I just realized that they bring their taste to their work and so if I latch on to something that that I, that I find particularly engaging, Only I can write that because it's my taste and my, my eye and my reporting and my, my verbiage and use of language. So, so I just have to lean into and try to be confident in what has made me, me the last 15 years or so. Right,
0: right. Uh, Well, Brenda, we're going to, we're going to take a short break. When we return, I want to talk about um, your, your piece, the day that never comes, which ran in proximity in 2016. Uh, And that piece won that online magazine's Narrative Journalism Award for that year. Um, But we'll take a short break, and we will return to talk about that. Uh, I'm Matt Tullis. This is Gangry the Podcast. Gangry the Podcast is brought to you by the College of Arts and Sciences at Fairfield University, which grounds students in the 500-year-old Jesuit tradition of academic rigor and personal reflection while providing them with the critical skills needed to succeed in work and life. Students work with passionate faculty and have the chance to study abroad, participate in civic engagement, and conduct hands-on research across a variety of disciplines. And by the Department of English at Fairfield University, which is home to the digital journalism major, as well as an English major with concentrations in literature, creative writing, English studies, professional writing, and teacher education. For more information on the College of Arts and Sciences and the Department of English, go to fairfield.edu. Welcome back to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis, and I'm talking with Brendan O'Meara. Uh, Brendan is the host and producer of the Creative Nonfiction Podcast, Uh, which uh, I guess is a competitor, but we're we're all aiming to uh, uh, feed out this love of narrative journalism or literary journalism. So I'm not really going to call him a competitor, um, (laughs) especially because he had me on his show uh, when Running with Ghosts came out. Uh, Brennan, you also write. uh, You uh, have have written quite a bit, actually. uh, And one story that I want to talk about um, that I read uh, is a piece that ran in 2016 in Proximity. Uh, and that piece is titled or headlined The Day That Never Comes. Um, can you talk a little bit about about that piece, what that piece was about?
1: Yeah, that um, that piece is a, a little out of my wheelhouse in a lot of ways, having been more of a sports writer over the years, and a lot of my stories tend to take place in horse racing, primarily and in, uh, in sports in general. But uh, this one um, is about uh, Morgan Dana Harrington, who was uh, a— young woman, 19 years old, who was abducted, raped, and murdered uh, from, she was, you know, abducted from a Metallica concert in 2009 in Charlottesville, Virginia. And I'm a diehard Metallica fan. So I often, I, at the time, and even today, I was, I would always just go to their website just to see what the news is almost every day, like checking the New York times at my home going Metallica.com. And at that time in late October, um, 2009, they, they put out a miss message that was like, one of our fans is missing. So I just clicked on that. And I it was this, this, you know, this young woman who uh, went to Virginia tech and she had gone missing. And, uh, you know, as, as you well know, as a, re- as reporters and, and people who have nose for narrative, even if, you know, you, you definitely sympathize and empathize with what's going on. But at the same time, you're like, you know there, there there could be a story here, um, so I just kind of kept saving string on it. You know every update I, I got, I just put it into a little file, and and I, I just slowly was like, okay, there's you know there's something here. And then you know in January, about four months later, her body was discovered. You know had, you know basically discarded on a remote farm, um, not too far from Charlottesville, in the middle of the woods. On the outskirts of this guy's farm, and um, so I'm just like saving saving string. Like I said, the news reports coming out coming out of there, and so the store, the the parents, Jill and Dan Harrington, they um, they they kind of took the they went on kind of went on the offensive, so to speak. You know, they were very media forward. Um, Jill, she's a very open wonderful spirit, strong, and she would, you know, blog openly about this and speak very candidly about it. And so I knew I wanted to reach out to possibly, uh, because they had the Save the Next Girl campaign too, like to, you know, hopefully just so this would not happen again and Save the Next Girl. So as they were doing that, I, I actually wrote a handwritten letter to Dan and Jill in uh, the fall of 2010, so about a year later, and you know, just saying that I wanted to write the story about their daughter and then how they were dealing with the grief, because at that time, uh, Mark, uh, Morgan had, yeah, she had been found, but the, the alleged um, killer hadn't been found, so um, hadn't been discovered. So I reached out to them and um, letter, mailed it off. Uh, a year goes by, so now we're in 2011, didn't hear back, so it's about you know fall 2011. I wrote another letter. I'm like, yeah, I'd still love to do this story to maybe turn up the leaves so people don't get complacent about this because that's you know things are when the iron's hot, everyone's gung ho, but then people return to their normal lives. So I wrote that in 2011, and then waited another year. But then in 2012, two years after I wrote the first letter, I got a call from Jill. And so we started having a lot of phone calls. I spent a lot of time on the phone and she was very open and forthright and just raw. So I I spent a lot of time on the phone with her and, and Dan. And those are like the two primary, that was basically how I built that story was just talking to them and their, their grief and, and building and then using, and talking to the Virginia state police public information officer to kind of build the timeline around things. And so the day that never comes was a song that Metallica played that night off their latest record, that which was Death Magnetic at the time, and she was at that show. And that you know, in the the day that never comes just kind of harkened to their uh, Dan and Jills just wanting to know where their daughter was, and and when they found out, you know, finally finally came and they're up in the helicopter and they're looking down on this scene of you know that's where she was you know Jill had a very much much more ethereal thing like that's where Morgan was laid to rest maybe some some mice in that field or used some of the hair of some of her hair to make a nest and but Dan was much more fire and brimstone and filled with revenge and rage more or less but so i kind of just you know that day never comes that, that waiting period the grief not knowing where their daughter was so that's kind of the origin story of that piece and how I, how I framed it. And I was, you know, lucky enough to, you know, have it, you know, win that, win that contest. So people had a chance to read it, read Jill and Dan's story as well as Morgan's.
0: Right. Right. Um, one thing that really interested me about the piece is the structure. Um, it reminded me a great deal of Chris Jones the things that carried him, uh, and that it runs in, in almost in reverse chronological order. Um, w- why, why did you do it? Why did, why did you set the story up that way?
1: When, uh, in very early drafts of it, um, I remember our mutual, mutual guest of our podcast and acquaintance, uh, Brian Mockenhop. Mm-hmm. He, um, he had read an early draft of that, and, he, and it was much more forward, much more A to Z, and he, he suggested, he's like, you might want to make this backward or write this backwards and have it be more of a slow reveal of what happened. And um so I when I flipped it on its head like that it just it made it a, a very kind of like memento like read in a sense and it um which was kind of which could be kind of confusing and it was kind of hard to make sure I kept everything straight. And I kind of like this idea of you know it starts with this the the parents with this this great and heavy loss and then it you know you start to learn what that loss was and what it what it meant to them and this whole you know how they came to discover it and then ending the piece with her very much alive and talking to her mother in her bedroom about how she what the outfit she was picking for the Metallica show and the, you know she wanted to wear wear boots but nothing nothing too uncomfortable because you know mom I'm going to be dancing and then and so like to to end it with this kind of scene of her getting into her Honda Civic and then driving away very alive and hopeful at that point seemed like a kind of a poignant point to end it on that you know she that ended with this you know now you know at the end of the story sort of like her where her story ends is you know she at this moment of joy and it just made it all the more I think a little more sad and and powerful to end it with her alive and hopeful and uh, as sort of hard as that is to write And probably for them and anyone To read who's had to experience that It just, it seemed like a, a way to Just a more poignant and sad way To end okay. the story
0: What did uh, what did her family think of the story After having worked with you, uh, you know In phone calls and everything so long
1: You know, I, Matt, I don't I honestly don't know I, I've sent I've sent the story to them I haven't heard Heard, uh, heard back, I don't I, I suspect they don't seem like the type of people who would have. They were so open. I doubt they hated it, but I don't know. I haven't gotten any feedback, right. to be honest. And it's been, <laughs> and it's been a while. I, I I have wanted to circle back and and just talk to them and just see how things are going because I really like them and yeah. I think they're doing wonderful work. And you know, you, when you do these kind of stories and you talk to people for so long, it's inevitable that you kind of become friendly with them and you kind of care about right. them too. And right. so I just in my own way, I just want to see how they're doing. And, uh, you know, if they, if they enjoyed the story and felt that paid a good tribute to Morgan, then all the, then, you know, all the better.
0: Right. It's funny. Um, or somewhat funny. Uh, when I wrote, um, my, my first piece for SB nation, a long form for Glenn Stout, uh, that was the, the heart feet of clay, heart of iron, uh, about the horseshoe pitcher. Um, uh, and I, I sent him the story after it ran, uh, and didn't hear anything. Um, And, and I was like, Oh crap. He, you know, he didn't like it. Um, or whatever, you know? Um, and then literally two years after it ran, I had a phone, I got a phone call on my cell phone and it was him. Um, he said he just read it and he was like crying. He was like, so thankful. It was the weirdest kind of thing ever, but, but it took him two years to read it. Um, and and he loved it. So maybe that's, maybe you'll have that, that phone call, uh, coming (laughs) up at, at some point. Um, so I, you know, we have a, we really do have a kind of a lot in common. Uh, in that we both host podcasts that focus on narrative and literary journalism. Um, we both, you know, we still write. Um, uh, you know, um, but we, uh, we also both have, uh, we are also both journalists who have MFAs uh, in creative writing. Um, you know, I got my MFA from UNCW uh, in in Wilmington, North Carolina, back in two thousand five. Um, you have your MFA from Gaucher College. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, in uh, 2008 was when I wrapped mine up.
0: So we've been just shadowing each other, like pretty much <laughs> our entire lives. Um, had you worked as a reporter before you got that MFA?
1: I did, yeah. So when I, I got, I was a sort of daily sports writer um, at a very small newspaper in Henderson, North Carolina, about 40 miles north of Durham um so if I'm Blue Devil uh, Blue Devils fans you know that's where they play and and so right up uh, north of Research Triangle Park so up there at a small paper covering you know two person sports staff covering the high schools uh, n- little to no college and little to no pros all high schools and then laying out the paper of course and uh so I was doing that for about mm, let's see Year and a half when I was just getting a bit bored. Uh, I, I went went up there, and of course, you know, just we have similar tastes. And like, I, I I was drawn to journalism to write the kind of stuff John McPhee does. Like, he's kind of my hero. Um, Survival of Bark Canoe is the book that made me want to write that kind of journalism. I'm not a hard news guy. I don't have the stomach for it. That that's the kind of reporting and storytelling I love, and that's that that's where my taste lies and so I just wasn't getting that I was just covering you know one or two games a day you know for you know high school is great you know it's cool to talk to uh, you know the, the high school sophomore who has a hard time making eye contact and getting them to talk about the big play and you know and all that like that's cool and I charming and I like that but I was also a bit bored of the same kind of formula pretty
0: mm-hmm, much right
1: so I was at uh, Barnes and Noble with my girlfriend at the time who would become my wife and uh, we were just reading I picked up a, a poets and writers magazine with you know John Updike was on the cover and and in there I flipped I just caught my eye for this ad for MFA and creative nonfiction at a Goucher College limited residency and it was like memoir and literary journalism I'm like wow I love literary journalism man memoir and I, then I did a little more research and I saw that on the advisory board was Tracy Kidder, uh, Madeline Blaze, Norm Sims, the latter two, like I studied under at UMass Amherst. And, uh, you know, John McPhee was there, You got Patsy Sim, Lee Gook and like up and down the roster. I'm like, whoa, like this is legit. And um, so I, I figured at the time, too, because I kind of had this this idea that, you know, you had the, you know, a, an undergraduate degree kind of gets you this, but then if you get a master's, it's like, oh, maybe I can make some more money or it'll give me a leg up in the publishing world or a leg up to work for magazines or a better newspaper job, I, I didn't know. So I applied in probably 2005 and uh, got in. So I was in for the summer residency of 06. And it was just, um, you know, limited residency being, you know, we spent two weeks there in the summer, then went home to wherever we were to do our, do our writing or research and reporting, and um, check in every so with our mentors, which we had one per semester, and uh, had another residency our second semester, and that was it. So uh, yeah, so I was drawn to that to because I kind of thought it would give me a leg up, but it also it taught me a thing or two about rigor, and and fitting um, you, that you can kind of fit book book projects around uh, around day jobs too if you structure your time accordingly.
0: Yeah, I did um, a residency, a three-year residency at UNCW, um, and, and so I didn't have to worry about that as much, although I also realized I kind of wasted, I feel sometimes I wasted my three years doing a memoir um, when I could mm. have been doing long-form narrative journalism, but I didn't even know long-form narrative journalism existed at that point in time. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I didn't i didn't uh, learn about that type of idea until... Uh, I was at the Columbus Dispatch, and and I happened upon gangry.com, dot uh, com, and I was kind of introduced to an entire new world. Um, did it help? Yeah, you? with uh,
1: Here, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. Go no, go ahead. Oh yeah. Well, it, with the I had an idea of what I wanted to write going in, which helped. Which was, um, you know, I was just getting into, you know, um, really getting into horse racing, mm-hmm. and very few people. Like are are in it at a real granular level, and when you get into it, you realize what a cool subculture it is with its own language. Um, you know, breezing bullets. You know, running. You know, uh, you know a you know a blowout going five furlongs in 58 and change. Like all these kind of really cool jargon that trainers and jockeys use. And uh, I was getting really into that, and I I got bit by the bug. at Saratoga, just being on the rail and seeing these horses come flying by. And Smarty Jones happened in 2004. He came within a length of winning the Triple Crown. He was like the people's horse. He was a small, scrappy cult, uh, kind of like Rocky. And the fact that he was training outside of Philadelphia just fed into that Rocky narrative. And uh, so I was into that. And then when I got into the program, I'm like, oh, I, I knew I wanted to write about horse racing. And I had met a young tra- trainer at the time in uh, who was training outside of New Kent, Virginia, and, uh, I just, he was about three years older than me. So real young guy I was 26 at the time. He was 29 and he had come off a really good year and you have access. What's great about horse racing is I can call up basically the, the, Le, the Bill Belichick of horse racing and within a phone call or two be on the phone with them. You know, you just can't. And the Le, likewise, the LeBron James is of the sport. You know, I phone call away from a lot of those people because no, nobody's covering it. So, I, um, I basically apprenticed under this trainer for a year as his hot walker, uh, which is just walking horses, that come hot horses that come off the track that need to be walked around the barn. And uh, so, I learned about horse racing on a level that few people ever got to by immersing myself basically as his assistant and uh, taking notes, interviewing him. So, I tell his story, also my journey on the backside, which is the title of the thing. It's an unpublished thing, but the education i got from following him doing this immersive journalism thing i was able to parlay into some bigger horse racing horse racing writing gigs turf writing for those in the know which you know ultimately led to having the authority to be able to write something like six weeks in saratoga and covering the races up in saratoga right it was kind of a cool journey that just by the mfa kind of got me immersed in that culture that i was able to parlay into a lot of the writing i still do today.
0: Yeah. It's funny. Um, I actually jumped into an MFA program cause I wanted to get out of newspapers. Um, mm-hmm. cause I had been working at a small daily covering city government, that type of stuff. Uh, and then when I was done with the MFA, I was like, Oh my God, I have to go back and work at newspapers now because I feel like there I can, I can open up and, and actually cover things a little bit differently. It was really kind of eye um, for me. I had, and I, I, I had yeah.
1: that experience too. Like, um, when I was still, uh, when I was up at, uh, you know my newspaper in uh, Saratoga Springs and I was doing the kind of uh, longer longer lens look of uh, and deeper reporting um, from the Goucher program where well, many people did personal essay and memoir but I was definitely more more chained to the literary journalism camp so it definitely made my features so much better like I was thinking in terms of scenes and dialogue instead of instead of Quotes.
0: Yeah, so, exactly. You know, exactly. Yeah. It's funny. Uh, just you know, to 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 mention a few more connections that we apparently have. Um, Tom French was one of your mentors uh, yeah. at Goucher, yeah. um, and I did a week long narrative uh, seminar with him at Pointer when I was at the Columbus Dispatch, which was which also kind of changed the way I write. Um, and you also worked with Philip Gerard as well, right? I I
1: didn't ment. I didn't. Uh, I was. He wasn't one of my mentors, but. I definitely had a connection with him at the residencies. And we're still in touch every now and again. And you know, talk about a guy who who has such a – he's like a polymath. He's just – he's involved in so many things. He's a great teacher. He teaches at the residency. He teaches at UNC Wilmington and writes books. He writes novels. He writes books on writing. He writes narrative journalism. Like This guy is just – it's amazing what he's able to accomplish. He's just an inspiring figure, and he's such a generous figure, as is Tom and so many other people, that they just they foster the sense of, you know, you do you, we need your voice. Do your work so we can read it. And it's you know, it's like, oh, you want to be you want to surround yourself with these kind of people. Yeah, he's just a an incredible spirit, and just yeah. a good guy, and a terrific writer and reporter.
0: Right, I was lucky enough to have a couple classes with him uh, when I did my MFA uh, at UNCW. So, uh, uh, yeah, that's pretty cool. Um, yeah. Uh, what, uh, what What are you working on? What type of writing projects are you working on right now?
1: So um, the one speaking of Glenn, um, I'm working with him on uh, this baseball memoir. I'm trying to finally uh, put the finally package and put together something I started in... 2009 and I'm still tinkering I put it I've put it in the drawer for as long as two years at a time You know, it's something that I just feel like it 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 bakes well in a right. drawer <laughs> <Right>. Yeah. <laughs> so um, so I've been working with him because I you know he's so I I never got to work with him Say like with a reported feature for say SB Nation when he was there as much as I wanted to but um, but I've been working with him on on this and in uh, it uh, so baseball memoir is just a it's about my father and baseball and it kind of the the main story spine of it takes place at a senior slow pitch softball tournament where it's actually me the son watching my father play ball so it kind of it kind of flips the script a little bit and it just kind of tells our our story and how baseball like bond broke and then bond us together uh bound us together again and so It's so kind of like a divorce memoir too as my parents split up when i was pretty young and um so just kind of in dealing with with that and in uh, following following our our various sport narratives and you know it's just kind of a father father son uh, story. So trying to put the final touches on that and I'm also like saving string on um the the Cassini satellite. You know the one that uh, last year you know the grand finale the the Cassini Saturn mission it kind of, uh, you know, they had this, this satellite probe just doing all this kind of research on Saturn, and then eventually it, they plunged it into Saturn while it was still transmitting back to Earth, and so I'm re- I'm just really fascinated with that, so I've just been saving all the kind of stories I can on that, but uh, it didn't really grab hold until um, my, in the last year and a half, I I just had, we had two older dogs, and we had to both of them to sleep just for old age and you know they were our best friends in our family and hearing the way that the engineers and the scientists talked about that satellite about how you know it was it was aging and then it's going and then the way it lost its transmission at the end like I just felt a real the personification of that satellite was very much what I was seeing in my dogs as the light went out of of them and so like I'm just kind of noodling around with you know, my my dogs, my best friends having to make that decision with the decision these engineers and scientists had to make with the satellite and the connection they felt. And they were crying and hugging each other as my wife are crying and hugging each other as our dogs pass. So kind of doing something with that. Those are kind of like the two things I'm mainly working on. And also this um, feature I just submitted about uh, equine cartoonist uh, Pierre Belloc, who lived during World War World War II and uh, lived during the Nazi occupation of France. And um, so that was a cool feature that I turned in recently. So those are the big things I've been working on.
0: Awesome. Well, good luck with, with the <clears throat> memoir. Uh, I know memoirs can take a, a little while to come about, uh, having spent 20 years on one. so uh, <laughs> But yeah. uh, good, good luck with that and uh, and with all your writing projects. Uh, Brendan, thank you so much for coming on Gangry the Podcast.
1: My goodness! Thanks for having me, Matt. This was a, a ton of fun, and uh, yeah, th- thanks again. Uh, I, I can't wait to share it. Uh, share it among our shared
0: audiences. I've been talking with Brendan Omira. Omira is the host of the creative nonfiction podcast and the author of Six Weeks in Saratoga. As usual, we've linked to his work on our website. You can find that at www.gangrythepodcast.com. Stay up to date with the podcast by following us on Twitter. That's at Gangry Podcast. Gangry is spelled G-A-N-G-R-E-Y. You can also like the podcast on Facebook. You can subscribe to Gangry the Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or any Google Play app. Just search Gangry. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y. Podcast. Gangre the Podcast is produced in Donna Ruma Studios at Fairfield University. It's made possible by the College of Arts and Sciences and the Department of English at Fairfield U. This episode was hosted and produced by yours truly. I'm Matt Tullis. Thanks for joining us.